the, the scripture reading for this afternoon's sermon can be found in Mark, the Gospel of Mark, chapter 1, reading verse 1 through 8. Mark 1, 1 through 8. The beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his, his paths straight. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, after, after me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Okay. Good to be here with you all again. Um, thanks to COVID, I didn't get another week out of the pulpit. Um, I was hoping for another week to kind of um, study Mark and get the wheels turning on that. But um, ultimately, God is sovereign over these things, right? So I rested in that. I was upset maybe for about a day or so, and then I realized God is in control of these things, and he will help. So I'm happy to begin this book with you all tonight. Thank you, Henry, by the way. He did a good job, didn't he? Why don't we give him a, a hand? Thank you for serving us, Henry, and um, um, boy, I, I kind of remember what I was doing at age 14, but it sure wasn't leading worship in front of a congregation, so good job, and uh, thank you for um, serving us in that way. You did great. Um, I essentially chose the Gospel of Mark uh, because I, I want to honor a decision that we made at GCF years ago to alternate between preaching through Old Testament books and New Testament books. Um, and the last book that I preached through was the book of Esther. That's an Old Testament book. And I didn't want to do a letter. Um, I don't know why exactly. I just didn't want to do a letter. And I didn't want to do a very long book. Uh, and since Mark was the shortest of the Gospels, and um, it at least is in my top four of the Gospels, right? So I decided that uh, we'll do, do the book of Mark. So I st set in the study, and I think that um, it's going to be good and timely for us. After doing a topical series um, the last couple of weeks, I'm kind of glad that we're done with that because I'm more convinced that, than ever that preaching through books of the Bible is the very best way to preach through the whole counsel of God, which God has commanded us to do. So I'm not opposed to doing topical series, and I think that they have their place in this church, and they always will have their place in our church. But I think the meat and potatoes of our ministry and GCF is going to be preaching through books. And um, it's actually a lot It's easier. It's easier to preach through books, and it's uh, easier to stay faithful to what God is saying to his people that way. So I am excited. I'm excited to jump into this book with you all. I'd like to be done with the book of Mark by the end of the year. That might be wishful thinking. I'll do my best to chart out a plan um, and give us a better understanding of what our time frame is here. And I realize that we cannot maintain the pace that I'm starting our series out at in the first couple of weeks. We're going to kind of go a little bit slow. But there are some very important foundations that I want to lay to understand the book and benefit from it more richly. Uh, so I'm going to be going a little bit slower over the first couple of weeks, just so you guys are aware. Getting the foundation of the house right is the most important part of the house. Those of you who are in construction or know a thing or two about construction, you'll know that if, uh, if, if you don't get the foundation of the, of the house correct, um, you've got major problems down the road, major problems. 
So getting the foundation of the, of the house is the most important part. Um, and we have to get that right before we start picking out the color of the carpet and the cabinets that we want to put in. So before we do that, we have to dig a hole. We have to dig a hole and we have to lay a concrete slab so that we can build on that. And today, that's what we're going to do. We're going to dig a hole and we're going to lay a slab um, in that hole. And we're going to put some foundation down so that we can understand this book. Uh, let me pray for us as we continue on. Lord, thank you so much for this people. And I do thank you for the privilege of being in this pulpit, preaching your word. Lord, I would have liked another week to get my mind together. But you are the God who helps your people. You're the God who shows up in our weaknesses and I just pray, Lord, that you would be gracious to show up and to demonstrate your power and demonstrate your love to us. So I pray, Father, that you would richly bless your people during this, during this study. And I pray, Lord, that um, you would pour out your favor and your kindness on us, Lord God. I pray, Father, that um, you would speak to us through this book, that we would delight in studying it and reading it and knowing what it says to us. Lord, in that uh, we would gain a deeper sense of who Jesus is, that his identity, Father, would uh, mean something for us because our identity would take shape after it. So I just ask, Lord God, please, that you would uh, demonstrate your power, demonstrate your love, and direct our steps, Lord, as a church who seeks to honor you and seeks to, to follow your will for our, for our collective lives. Um, we look to you and we are eager and we are expecting for what you will do, for how you will speak, for how you will mold and how you will shape. And Lord, um, we just continue to pray, Father, for those who are sick. We know that we have a number of different folks in our church right now who are facing sickness. We pray for them. And we lift them up to you. We pray for relief upon them and quick healing. We pray for those who are hurting. Lord, we just ask, God, that um, you would be their comfort. You would be their shepherd. Lord, we thank you. We thank you. Um, we just scratch the surface of all the needs that we really have. And you know them all. So I just surrender, Father, all the different things that we couldn't pray for. Trusting, Lord, that you know all of our needs and you uh, care about them, and you are a good shepherd who lays down his life for his sheep and serves. So please go before us now and meet your people by your grace and by your power. In Jesus' name we pray all these things. Amen. So, um, so Mark was not an apostle, and therefore he relied on Peter for not only firsthand information, but also his apostolic authority. Right? So in some ways we could say, that this gospel is the gospel of Peter. But Mark is the writer of it, and scholars are agreed on that, generally. Mark wrote this some 30 years after the fact, about 60 or 70 AD. Um, the first time I learned that the gospels were actually compiled so far after they actually occurred troubled me a little bit. This was years ago that I learned this when I was doing some seminary work. That made me a little bit nervous, right? Because if you've ever played the game Telephone, have you guys ever played that game Telephone? Right? Somebody whispers a message into another person's ear, and then they whisper that same message, and you try to get around the ring of people, however many that is. Um, it usually goes bad pretty fast and pretty bad, right? Um, the message gets distorted quite significantly. Um, but really, this was orally transmitted and orally preserved for some 30 years after the, the events of Jesus actually happened. And that's pretty amazing. So you might ask the question, um, how can we have confidence that we are reading, or what we are reading are, is accurately preserved, right? Especially if they're transmitted and preserved orally. Well, here's, here's how I would answer that, and here's, um, here's some answers to that question. I don't want to spend too much time on this, but um, the Gospels were written in the midst of an oral culture, right? So this means that many people... Um, in this day and age, had a much better memory than we do today. <laughs> um, that's definitely true. We, I think, collectively, culturally, have, have bad memories. I don't know if you guys have ever thought about this, but one of the reasons that we have bad memories is because of, uh, of this guy right here, right? 
you don't need to remember anything because you can just click, 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 and boom, you've got information available to you. So you can pack lots and lots and lots and lots and lots and lots of information into your brain, and, um, and then you always have a reference right in your pocket, right at your fingertips. But their culture was very much unlike that. They, um, you know, they uh, didn't have that instant access to information, so they would memorize things much more proficiently because they depended on it. And also sharing stories was paramount to their identity, right? Their culture kind of was based on sharing stories. So if someone were to misquote, some, someone was to misquote some, someone or something, if they were to misrepresent a certain detail of the story, there would be plenty of people to kind of step up and say, no, 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 that's not how it was. It was like this and so on and so forth, right? Um, another thing that we could look at and say is that the fact that there is four gospel accounts, right? There's four gospel uh, accounts, and they're written by four different people, writing at different times, and yet the stories don't contradict each other. They line up. Um, how do you explain that? How would you explain the fact that four writers at different times with different motives and intentions um, all are saying essentially the same thing? They don't say things that are contradictory. In the ways that they are different, it's because the gospel writers, and we have four of them, that devote their uh, books to the life and, and ministry of Jesus Christ. Um, sometimes they, they will have different information in them, but they're never contradictory. And the reason why there is different information within the four different gospel accounts is because they have different purposes for writing, and they're uh, trying to address different audiences. So yes, there might be some variance amongst the four Gospels. You know, sometimes you'll read a story that in Matthew, that's also in Mark and Luke and so on and so forth. And especially Matthew, Mark, and Luke are called the synoptic Gospels, which are more similar than John is. But nonetheless, you hear overlapping stories. And uh, the reason why there is differences is because each Gospel writer has a different emphasis and a different purpose for writing. They're trying to communicate a different aspect of Jesus' life and ministry. But again, like I said, the fact that they never contradict each other tells us, hmm, this must be accurate information, and we can depend on that. What is Mark's emphasis, you ask? Well, um, he focuses a lot on the deeds of Christ, right? The word immediately comes, um, comes up, and Mark is trying to move us along. He wastes no time getting us right into the story and the person and the work of Christ. If you notice, right off the bat, the very first verse um, Mark does not include a birth narrative of Jesus. He jumps right into his adult life. And that's because <clears throat> Mark is very much interested in getting us acquainted with the identity of Christ. Mark wants, to, uh, Mark, Mark wants us to understand the identity of Christ. And by extension, I think this is where maybe the rubber meets the road for us to some extent. When you understand the, identi the identity of your God, of your Savior, you start to understand yourself, right? And this is what, you know, this is, I guess you could say this is just an anthropological reality, but this is certainly true with the Bible. When you understand the God that you worship and his identity, it actually shapes your identity. The best way to understand who you are and the best way to come into your personal sense of identity is to understand who your God is, right? And to some extent, everybody worships something, and everybody worships someone, perhaps. And that is a big impact on who they are and how they understand themselves to be. So for us to understand our God isn't just a theological study that's in a vacuum separate from our reality in our lives. No, when we understand Christ, who is our Savior, He's our God, He inhabits our very being, that starts to put into perspective, who am I? <laughs> and who are we as a church? So this is an exciting study, really. Um, and to some extent, this isn't just the, the Gospel of Mark that we would have to do. This is why we preach the way we preach at this, at this church. Because we believe that when we understand God, when we understand who he is and his identity, we start to rightly understand ourselves much better, right? And uh, so here's a quote. Above all, Mark's portrayal of Jesus is characterized by three factors. His divine authority, his mission as the suffering servant of God, and his divine sonship, okay? So his divine authority, his mission as the suffering servant of God, and his divine sonship. These are things that Mark is very much concerned with communicating to the readers. He wants you to understand Christ has divine authority. He wants you to understand that Jesus, 
is our mission as a suffering servant, or that was his mission, is to be the suffering servant. And number three, that he is the divine son of God, right? Um, <clears throat> and now, uh, it might also be helpful for you to understand just a general outlay of the book. It basically is two parts. You could, you could divide it into two parts. There's a noticeable shift somewhere in the middle around chapter 8, towards the end of chapter 8, um, where the first eight chapters are focused on the work of Christ. You know, the deeds of him, uh, the, the deeds of Christ, his ministry, all the things that he did. Mark gives special attention to that. And there's a noticeable shift, I said, about halfway through. Um, and he spends the second half of the book, in, in the, the entire book, the, the second half of the entire book is given to the last week of Christ's life, which is the week of his uh, trial and suffering, right? So Mark puts a lot of emphasis on the suffering of Christ. And it's almost as if, Part one, the first half, introduces us to the identity of Christ. And in part two, through his suffering, Mark validates, Mark validates the identity of Christ through his suffering, if that makes sense. So Mark gives special attention to Christ as the suffering servant. And I think he does so to validate that, yes, this is Jesus, the Son of God. And it brings into us, uh, to our understanding, a much fuller understanding of his true identity as a suffering servant, the suffering divine son of God. So uh, that's an interesting, uh, perhaps that will be helpful for you as you understand the book. Part one, part two, emphasis on his identity in the first section and emphasis on his suffering as a validation of his identity in the second section. So I guess with this in mind, there's really never a bad time to jump in a, into a book like Mark, right? Was to focus our eyes on Christ to fix our eyes on Jesus, to see him and all his glory and all his beauty, to look at him and his, in his work and his ministry and in his mission, as we gain a better idea of that, um, not only will we worship him more fully, but we come to understand ourselves as well. And, um, and, I, and I desire that. I desire that you would understand Christ personally, but I also desire that we as a church collectively understand Christ and see him together. You know, so that's a way that you can join us in prayer, too. During this, during this series, may we collectively see Christ, and may we enjoy Christ. May these sermons and may the, this study, right, be kind of a, um, uh, what's the word, a feast. That we come to the banqueting table, and we feast on who Christ is together for us. And may we be a people that rejoice in our Savior, and may he shape us in profound ways and move us into mission. So these are things that I desire to happen, to see happen over the course of us preaching this word, right? This isn't just a Bible study that we're enter, uh, entering into. This is God speaking to his church, shaping us as his people, moving us into action. So may it be so. May it be so. All right. So with all of that, let's get into Mark 1, 1 through 8, shall we? Let's get into the text. Can we do that? Enough of this preamble stuff. You guys want some exposition here. I can tell. You got, you got a hungry look on your eyes. Um, <clears throat> it reads, The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Mark 1.1. 1, 1. <clears throat> so Mark is the earliest gospel writer. I don't know if you are aware of this. Even though he's not listed as the first writer in the, in the New Testament, he was the earliest gospel writer. And that's an important detail, actually. And uh, most likely, Mark, or I'm sorry, Matthew and Luke uh, probably borrowed pretty heavily from the Gospel of Mark to build their own Gospels. But notice the language in this first verse, the beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Doesn't that remind you a little bit of Genesis 1-1, the same way the Old Testament started off? In the beginning was God created the heavens and the earth. Um, Genesis 1-1. Kids, you probably know that one. Um, Yes, so there's a, there's a connection, and I think that's one of the reasons why it's important to, to see. This is one of the first things, one of the first Gospels that was put together uh, for uh, when we think about Jesus Christ. So there's a new beginning going on. There's a new beginning. And um, I don't know if we still have it. Okay, so the, the picture that I selected, you see that sun rising there, right? It's like a sunrise. Every time you look at that picture, and we'll be seeing it a lot over the course of this series, think of the gospel as a new beginning. The gospel is the light dawning on the earth, dawning on mankind, shining into a sinful world. And uh, there's a new beginning. 
right? So we're going to look at that. There's a new beginning that's dawning in Christ, and that's, that's good news. That's very good news. So that's one of the things that we can say. Mark is presenting to us a new beginning, and it centers on Jesus Christ. And I'm going to say more about this new beginning, but right now I want to, I want to focus our attention on the word gospel itself. Gospel. That's a, that's a word that we're all pretty familiar with, right? Gospel. However, I learned this week that gospel was a political word that was used to describe military victories. First and foremost, actually. The Bible actually borrowed from kind of the secular world, from what I understand. And I, honestly, I looked at that and said, no, gospels, that's our word, right? <laughs> we own that word. And that's the reality. I, actually, I probably shouldn't say this, but what the heck. Um, it made me think, it made me feel a little bit like, like when I learned Mr. Miyagi. Do you guys ever see The Karate Kid? I learned that he, later on in my life, he actually doesn't know any karate at all. <laughs> uh, you know, if this, if this disturbs you like it disturbed me when I heard that, disturb is not the right word. It was just more disheartening, right? It was disheartening. Like, really? My childhood hero, Mr. Miyagi, doesn't know any karate at all? Um, so obviously he's a very good actor. But, um, you know, I kind of felt like this a little bit, you know, when I heard this. Like, no, oh, that's our word. <laughs> it can't be so. Um, but the reality is the gospel is first a political word. So Mark and the New Testament writers actually borrowed from their secular age and said, no, oh, uh, we'll tell you what the real gospel is all about. And I kind of like that. And when you think of it that way, did you know that within a decade of Jesus's birth, Caesar Augustus's birthday was hailed as the gospel, right? So um, at the same time that Jesus is born, here's Caesar Augustus, the big cheese of, of the Roman Empire. It's hailed as the gospel, right? Since he was considered a god, actually. And these Roman um, emperors were deified. They were considered deity. They were considered gods. They were responded to as gods. They were asked to be worshipped as gods. Um, and because that was so, Augustus's birthday signaled the beginning of, the, of good news for the world. <laughs> Isn't that interesting, by the way? The way that uh, Jesus enters into his culture um, was really ripe for, if you think about it, it was really ripe for, yeah, there's this ex expectancy for good news to dawn on mankind. And we see that Caesar Augustus is not it. He is not. Or, or any political leader for that matter, right? This is telling for how we begin to understand uh, the Gospel of Mark and how, um, uh, how, how this communicates to us about Jesus. And there's an important distinction that should be made about this. In the Greco-Roman world, the word gospel always appears in the plural, okay? Meaning good tidings among others. So when the gospel was used in the Greco-Roman world, it was always in the plural, and it just meant this is good news among other good news. But in the New Testament, gospel only appears in the singular. And now you're starting to see, okay, this is why I titled the sermon the way that I did. Because the New Testament, there is, in, in the New Testament's idea, and Mark's idea, and all, the, and all the writers, the apostles' idea, is that there is only one good news, right? It's not good news among other pieces of good news. This is the good news of God and Jesus Christ, beside which there is no other. Hallelujah. That's gospel truth for us, right? Um, when we talk about Jesus who has entered the world, who has dawned on, on mankind a new beginning, this is the one and only, this is the one and only good news. And maybe another thing I could say about this is when you think about good news, okay, so there's a lot of different things that could be considered good news, right? Um, so if this is the only, this is the good news beside which there is no other, I guess we could say this, without this good news, any other piece of good news that we have is ultimately not good news. Can we say that? Can we, say, I mean, can we agree on that? If you are still in your sins, or if somebody is still in your sins, no matter how good your news might be, whatever might happen to you in your life along the way that is good, it ultimately isn't good if you're still in your sins. If at the end of the day you are separated from God eternally, and you bear the consequences of your sin eternally and bear the wrath of God eternally, no, there is no good news, right? And we can, uh, on the flip side, we can say, you know what, no matter how difficult your life might be, 
no matter how much suffering or trial might enter your life, no matter how much bad news you might encounter, if this, is, if this good news is true of you, if you are not in your sins any longer, and if you have an eternity, right, of uh, being in the presence of the living God, then no bad news can ultimately be bad. So I think that's one way to look at the fact that this is the gospel singular, right? It appears in the, in the singular only. It is the good news of God and Jesus Christ, beside which there is no other. Okay, so Mark 1.1, 1, 1, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Can we look at that just for a moment? Mark's statement here, he calls Jesus the Son of God. Now I'm going to ask you a question. Take a guess. You don't have to say it out loud. Just keep it to yourself. How many times do you think Mark mentions and talks about the Son of God, uses that, that phrase in the, throughout the Gospel of Mark? Now, I probably set that up in a way to lead you to believe that there's just lots and lots of them, right? Gobs and gobs of times Mark probably refers to Jesus as the Son of God. Actually, it's only three, right? But that doesn't mean that it's not significant, because Jesus is only referred to as the Son of God three times in the book. But the location of where he mentions these things, or where he mentions that, that phrase, Jesus the Son of God, is very important. Okay, um, And we'll pay attention to two of the three. One is in chapter 3. We won't get into that one. But the first one is obviously here in verse 1. It talks about Jesus being the Son of God. And this, in the last one is in Mark 15, 39, almost at the very end of the book. Um, it says, and when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the son of God. So do you see how it bookends? That's the suggestion here, is that the, 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 the book bookends. It begins and ends. It's sandwiched together with this idea that Jesus is the son of God. And towards the end of the book, at the very end, the discovery is made by this pagan man, by this Roman uh, official, the centurion, he looks at Jesus, whom he was part in crucifying and putting to death, and he says, you know what? This guy was God. He truly was. Everything that he said and taught was true. It was real. And I think that's, it's a profound way that Mark communicates, even though he doesn't say Jesus is the Son of God a lot, everything that he records about Jesus is building up to this realization and this affirmation, yes, Jesus is the Son of God. And if this Roman centurion can say, see this, then truly it is so, right? Truly it is so. So Jesus is the Son of God, and everything being presented about him is building up to this reality, and it bookends. Jesus is the Son of God at the beginning and at the end, and everything in the middle is kind of sandwiched in there to prove this point. And if you think about it, how it's juxtaposed against the, 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 the Roman officials at the time. So in the day that Jesus was actually born, Caesar Augustus was kind of the, the emperor. But in the day that this book was written, it's a little confusing, because remember it was 30 years later, in the day that this book was actually written, it was Nero who was actually ravaging the church. He was the emperor of Rome. And when Mark actually put pen to paper and wrote this to the church, Nero was the one who was on the throne. But nonetheless, it doesn't really matter because both of them were deified. Both of them were treated as gods. And Nero was very violent and vicious and awful towards Christians, right? And the reality is, you see the, the contrast uh, these uh, emperors were thinking, teaching, or they were re related to as God. But the reality is, Jesus is God. Jesus is the Son of God. And Jesus is the one who builds his kingdom. And Jesus is the one who is the true hope. Nero is not a hope. Caesar Augustus is not a hope. No matter how much we can build these people up, and no matter how much we can amplify them, and no matter how much glory and power they have through their, through their empires, it's a false hope. And I think that's one of the messages here for us as we see the way that Mark talks about Jesus being the Son of God. Can you see, church, can you see, Christian, that Jesus is the only hope for salvation? Nero does not provide you an eternal hope. He's in the grave. He's dead. And they cannot solve your deepest issues. They cannot solve your sin problems. They may be able to give you a few things. They may be able to support a good economy, perhaps, at best. 
but they cannot solve your sin problems. And if you worship these leaders as a God, it is a false hope for victory. Only Jesus is worthy of our worship. Only Jesus is worthy of worship for anybody at any time and in any place. And I think this is one of the key messages that we learn from this book. Okay, and that goes for us too. Wherever we put our hopes and false, false hopes, politicians, or whatever it might be, there's a false hope for victory. And this invites us to, to examine our hearts and examine the ways that we might put our hope into a false hope. The way that we look to other things to fill what only God can fill, to solve what only God can solve. So that's one of the ways that perhaps the rubber meets the road for us and it confronts us. What is your hope in? And what are you putting your hope in? Is it in Christ and only in Christ? Because only Christ is the Son of God and only Jesus can save. So let's look at verses 2 and 3, which is as far as we'll get today. Um, and then next week I want to look at verses 1 through 8 again and focus in on John the Baptist. With all of the preamble stuff that I had to get through today, um, this is as far as we'll get through today. Um, and again, this is important foundation. It says this, As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. You see, Mark, he wastes no time building his gospel on the Old Testament. Do you see this? Right away, immediately, he goes to the Old Testament. And this is the hole. This is the hole that Mark digs down into, and this is the concrete slab that he lays, is digging down into the depths of the Old Testament. This is the foundation that is given for Mark to build his gospel identity upon. Uh, so uh, th this is why I think if we can understand these passages and their context a little bit, uh, the message of Mark, I think, will become so much more rich to us. So um, let's look at these passages, okay? Can we do that? Uh, that's what I desire to do with you right now, is to kind of go through these passages in the Old Testament, examine their context just briefly, and then kind of bring it back to Mark. And, and perhaps what we can do is uh, come away with a, a better understanding of where he's going here. So first of all, we're told that this is written um, in the book of Isaiah, right? And then he quotes this, right? It says, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. He says this is written in the book of Isaiah. And that's accurate, actually. But what's interesting is there's actually three Old Testament passages woven into this. All right, uh, there's one from Exodus 23:20, Malachi 3:1, and Isaiah 40 verse 3. All right, and I'm going to invite you to turn actually to those passages in Exodus 23:20. That's the first one we'll look at, and it's peculiar that uh, Mark would say this is the word of Isaiah, when actually it was in addition to the word of Isaiah it was also the word of Moses and Exodus, and it was the word of Malachi too. Why doesn't he say this is the word of Isaiah, Malachi, and Exodus, or, 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 or Moses? So it's peculiar. I, I'll address that in just a moment. But it is built on Exodus 23.20, which says, Behold, I send an angel before you to guard you on the way and to bring you to the place that I have prepared. So do you guys see the similarity there? You see how that passage is actually woven into what Mark quotes in Mark 1.2. Um, so uh, this is uh, Exodus 23:20 that I just wrote, or um, I didn't write it. I just read it. Behold, I send an angel before you to guard you on the way and to bring you to the place that I have prepared. You see this, this messenger theme, right? Um, what is happening? We can ask ourselves a question. What's happening at this point in the life of Israel? Uh, this is just after the Exodus, or this is the original Exodus, should we say, right? Um, at this point, the Israelites... Right? They um, are uh, they're God's chosen people. They're living in the land of Egypt. They're enslaved to this wicked Pharaoh. Right? And God shows up in mighty power. God shows up and displays his power. He displays his glory. And he promises them, you know what? I'm going to pull you out of this situation. And I'm going to pull you into something new. Uh, this is the exodus to exit out of. Right? So this is kind of the context and God leads them out and he demonstrates his power by parting the Red Sea and crushing the army that tried to apprehend them. 
But God wasn't only leading them. This is important. God wasn't only leading them out of something. He was leading them into something. He wasn't just leading them out of something bad. He was leading them into something good, right? Um, and he was, this, so this good is this new beginning in a new land, a land flowing with milk and honey, if you guys remember the Old Testament language. God's people were dawning on something new, something glorious. And you see, God just wanted a little bit of time with his people on the Mount Sinai to give him his commands, to show him this is what it means to be my people. God had promised his people that they would be his treasured possession, right? You will be my treasured possession. And he's calling them out of not only just the slavery to Egypt and the oppression that was under Pharaoh, but he's also calling them out of, you shall not worship false idols. Don't worship false gods. You're now my people, so he spends time with them and he gives them his law. He gives them his covenant. This is kind of like the constitution of Israel at this point, right? This is the document. This is the covenant that will define your relationship with me. I think that's what's kind of the context here in this original Exodus, the first Exodus. And it's interesting that Mark points to this, right? Right off the bat, he wants us to be thinking about, hey, I'm going to build the gospel for you. Let me start with, remember back here in Exodus when God's people were in uh, slavery, and then I pulled them out and I promised them to bring them into something new. So that's the first thing that Mark wants us to understand. He wants us to, to have that in our, in our minds. And then there's Isaiah 43, 40 verse 3. If you want to turn there, you can look at that. We're going to look at another pa passage within Isaiah 40. Uh, some time has elapsed, and then we get to this prophet Isaiah. We get to what he says. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. You see, I'm sorry, Isaiah talks about a new exodus. He has this idea of this new exodus because the first exodus, back in Exodus, failed. And God's people did not, right? They did not stay faithful. They did not um, uh, stay pure. They actually worshiped false gods. They sinned with the sin of idolatry, right? This, the, the, they could not keep the covenant, and the good news of their new beginning in Exodus soon became an old garment stained with sin and idolatry. So now there's a need for another Exodus. There's a need for another deliverance, except it's not deliverance from a wicked Pharaoh that oppresses them. It's deliverance from sin that oppresses them. And Isaiah has this idea of this new, more glorious exodus that is going to come, and he's predicting it. He's prophesying of it. And Mark doesn't really quote a whole lot from the Old Testament, but Isaiah is actually his favorite book that he quotes from. He loves to build off of the book of Isaiah. So even though um, he quotes Exodus and Malachi too, right, he writes that Isaiah has spoken and the reason why Isaiah has, or he says Isaiah has spoken, and there's actually three, there's actually three quotes from the Old Testament, but he gives credit to Isaiah. It's because Isaiah has the controlling idea here. He has the controlling and the defining idea of what is going on in these passages. So if you keep reading in Isaiah 40, you can see that Isaiah has the first exodus in mind, but he's hoping for a grander, new exodus. Look at verses 9 through 11 with me, if you would. He says this, Go up on a mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. So here we have this theme of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Israel, or Jerusalem. Uh, a herald of good news. Lift it up. Fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, Behold your God. Behold, the Lord God comes with might, and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him, and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. Sometimes reading the prophets is a little bit difficult. But one of the ways that we can translate it, this is that Mark, or I'm sorry, Isaiah is envisioning a new, more glorious exodus. One that won't fail the way that the original exodus failed, if that makes sense. And this one is going to come with the hope of a savior, a messiah. This one is going to come with a shepherd that's actually going to come to his people and tend to his people like a shepherd carries a sheep in his bosom, right? And gently lead them um, along. So the way that the Isaiah envisions a new, more grand, greater exodus is by uh, pr predicting, prophesying 
of an exodus or a, a, a salvation that is going to come with a Savior built into it. It's not just going to be a law. It's going to be a Savior that comes to actually rescue his people. So um, <clears throat> that's, uh, I think that's one of the, the, the big ideas here in the book of Isaiah. And then if we can go to Malachi real quick. You see, Malachi says this, Malachi 3.1, that is. Um, so if you want to turn in your Bibles to Malachi 3.1, it says this, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. Again, you can see the language there, very similar. So the last context to, to look at here is, is this book, or the, the, this passage here in Malachi. Now, you might be aware that this book is put in the very last uh, book of the Old Testament, the last thing that you read before Christ comes onto the scene. And remember, Mark was the first uh, gospel writer, really. So, um, and that, that's where that detail becomes a little bit more important. You see, Malachi addresses the disappointment attending the apparent failure of Isaiah's new exodus. Okay, so what's going on here, in other words, is that there was this original exodus. God pulls his people out. His people um, were not faithful to the covenant. Then Isaiah comes along as it progresses. Some time has passed. And he says, you know what? I'm going to promise there's going to be a new greater exodus, a new work that God is going to do where he's going to pull his people out of the slavery and bondage of sin. And it's going to come with the Savior. It's going to be great. It's going to be awesome. It's going to be wonderful. And then some more time passes and we get to Malachi. And it's like, it's not happening. What's going on? Where is God? Where, did he forget about his promise? It seems like the promises to, of God to Israel has failed because time has passed and it's been long and we've been waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting and it's not here. And that's where Malachi addresses this. Do you see that? It's starting to come together hopefully for you why, uh, how Mark puts this together. And in fact, it's worse than nothing happening. It's actually worse than that. If you guys want to join me in verse 11, we can read this together. Look at verse 11. The city, oh, I'm sorry, in chapter 1, verse 8, it tells us that the city is still ruled by the Persians. Locusts and drought were ravaging the land. Look at verse 11. I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil and your vine in the field shall not, shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. So there we see that there's devastation, that locusts and droughts were ravaging the land. And then um, if you look down at verses uh, 14 and 15 of chapter 3, it says this, You have said, it is vain to serve God. What is the profit of our keeping his charge or of, waking, or of walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts? And now we call the arrogant blessed. Evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to the test and they escape. Do you see that? They're looking at this and saying, here we are, God's people waiting for this salvation and nothing's happening. And on top of that, the wicked are prospering. The arrogant are blessed, it says. And they're lamenting this. They're wondering, why are the arrogant blessed? Why do evildoers, evil not only do they prosper, but they put God to the test and they seem to escape. God, have you forgotten us? You, I, thought you, I thought there was this great thing going to happen. Where is it? So that's why it's important. This is kind of the note that the Old Testament ends on. And it's interesting, isn't it? That the very first writer of the New Testament starts in with this, this concern. You see that? He starts in with this concern. He starts in with this pregnant expectation of where is this salvation of God? Where is this Savior? Where is he? Has God forgotten us? So Mark is tapping into this expectation for a new exodus. He's meeting his people and he's saying, yes, I, I hear you. I hear you and I care. I have something to say about that. And guess what? You've waited, and the time is now. So there's a real excitement here at the, at the beginning of the book of Mark. So there's a connection in the Old Testament and in Mark between gospel and exodus and new beginnings. God is going to pull you out of slavery, and he's going to put you into something great and something glorious, something new. 
And by quoting from the Old Testament, Mark is teaching us that this good news also includes a new beginning, a new creation, if you will. In fact, it requires a new creation. And that's what we read throughout the New Testament. If you are in Christ, you are a new creation. And Mark says that there's a deeper, there's a deeper problem with, 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 the, with the need for the new exodus, with this new beginning. It's not just a new leader that comes into the, into the, into the picture. It's, it's, it, it, all creation must be restored. You must become a new creation in Christ. God must do a regenerating work in you if you're going to participate in this good news in this gospel. Because if he leaves you in your sins, if he leaves you with the heart of stone that you have, there is no new beginning and there is no good news. Can I get an amen on that? So Mark shows us that he is about to unveil this new and greater exodus it is new and greater because it comes with Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And the Israelites, you see, they had fire and cloud to guide them. Remember that? I'll lead you by, what is it, fire by night and cloud by day. Is that right? Did I get that right? Um, we have God incarnate, Jesus Christ. Isn't that amazing? We have the opportunity for intimacy with God that is completely new and completely thoroughly better. Because we have Christ with us. We don't just have a fire, a pillar of fire and cloud that leads us. We have Jesus Christ, God incarnate, the Son of God. The one who suffered and died for you. That's a glorious reality. Um, when John says in verse 8, um, John the Baptist that is, in verse 8, he says, I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. What does that mean? It means this. He's saying that believers are drawn into the very presence of the Savior and servant by the work of the Holy Spirit. You see, the reason why this exodus is greater and more glorious is because not only does it come with the Savior, but it also comes with the Holy Spirit, who actually manifests the life of Christ in each and every one of his believers, right? And we have this new heart. We have Jesus living in us. You see, when God led the Israelites out of Egypt... He, the Spirit did not indwell his people full time. But now, as, a, as a benefactors of the new covenant, the Holy Spirit is available to all of us all the time. That is a great and glorious reality. And we shouldn't miss the best part of this good news. So for Mark, he builds this understanding of the gospel. It involves pulling out from slavery. It involves going in towards something glorious. But what is that something glorious? And I would suggest to you, for Mark, who in his idea of the gospel, it is no gospel unless it goes into, not the land flowing with milk and honey, but into the presence of the living God. This is the land flowing with milk and honey for Mark. It's the presence of God. It comes with God himself incarnate through the agency of the Holy Spirit, right? The gospel, you see, isn't merely the forgiveness of sins. It isn't merely that it is a new beginning and a new creation and we are heading into the promised land. The gospel is that we are coming out of slavery to sin and heading into the very presence of God, Jesus Christ. It says, this is the gospel in verse 1. Can I pull that up again here? The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Meaning, what Jesus is saving us to is himself. Do you see that? He is incarnating himself. He is the word becoming flesh, and he is nailed to the cross, and he gives up his life so that you can have him. And that is eternal life, and that is what is good news for Mark, is that you get Christ, that you get the very presence of God. So this invites us to really consider, is this the good news that we long for? Is this the good news that makes us tick? Do we value this good news, and do we treasure this good news? That's, that's a question for us to consider, church. What do you think of as good news? And do you value and do you treasure this good news? And I can say, after walking with Christ for many, many years, you know what? I can say, on the one hand, man, I've had this new beginning. I, that, that's happened for me, like 20 years ago. I went through that. That was great. It was powerful. It was life-transforming. But you know what? It is life-transforming today for you, Pastor Kevin. There is a new beginning dawning upon you every moment of every day. Every day, you, your sins can be washed, washed, wiped clean. 
You have forgiveness of sins. And in a sense, there is no new message here. I am still saved unto my God and to Jesus Christ. But you know what? There is new circumstances. There is new situations that present themselves. And the gospel is new and fresh for every step of our lives, every step of the way. And we should never lose sight of that, church. If you've been walking with Christ for 20 or 50 years, there is a new beginning dawning for you every single moment of every single day. There's new realizations to learn of how Jesus saves you and how Jesus forges a way forward. And there's new discoveries and realizations of the glories that await you in his presence forevermore. So, you know what? If you're at a place where it's kind of been a little bit stale or a little bit dull, you've heard that, you've been there, you've done that, this is a word to you too. This is a word to all of us, right? Jesus is, in the gospel, is the good news of a new beginning. And there's a word here for those of us who have heard this and been there and done that. So may that be so in all of our hearts. If this is the first time that you have heard the gospel of Jesus Christ, hallelujah. You should repent and be baptized and put your faith in Christ and you know what? If this is the 337th time that you've heard this message, you should think about your sins and repent of them and put them to death and slay them and find joy in Christ because it's only there that you will find joy. So next week, let's focus on the identity of John the Baptist and explore his role in calling us to prepare ourselves. I kind of segued into that and gave us a little foretaste, but we'll look at John the Baptist next week. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your goodness and your kindness to us. And thank you, Lord God, that this is the good news of a new beginning. And Lord, yes, in a sense, that beginning dawns once, but in another sense, it dawns every single day and in every single moment. So thank you, Lord God, for the fresh winds of grace. Every time we sin, like Mark pointed out, we sin and we sin frequently. And every single time we do that, we can run to you, Lord Jesus, and find fresh winds of grace, fresh new beginnings of you're forgiven and I forgive you and you're accepted because of Christ. So thank you, Lord God. Thank you that you have walked with us and you have a journey to be on with your people. And it involves uh, many, many, many times where we will come to you again and find forgiveness over and over again. So we praise you and we ask that you would be with us now as your people. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.